Hello, Buildings on Air podcast listeners. This is your host, Kiefer Dunn, uh, coming to you from my home studio, um, the offices and recording studios of WLPNLP Chicago Lump and Radio are uh, closed uh, during the coronavirus pandemic, um, so we are recording here. Um, I'm not sure uh, when we will regain our sort of normal 2020 groove um, and be back in the studio and back on the airwaves, um, but in the meantime, I am hoping to uh, keep the content flowing onto the podcast feed. Um, hopefully, you'll hear some recordings from home um, with me and my partner, Marinella Deprile, um, who's a Buildings on Air regular guest, um, folks from uh, DSA who are at this point well accustomed to the intricacies of Zoom meetings. Um, I'm a little rusty, as you'll hear momentarily. Um, and uh, yeah, so I'd, I'd also uh, be open to other suggestions and ideas. So if you have an idea about uh, how we can keep buildings on air afloat, uh, interesting people we should be conversing with, um, what have you, uh, please go ahead and send us an email, buildingsonair at gmail.com. Um, this episode, I was really happy uh, to have a conversation with Billy Fleming, um, who has been on the show before. I hope listeners are familiar with Billy. Um, follow him on Twitter. Uh, he's a great guy, and uh, we had a really good conversation. Uh, without further ado, uh, here you are. Enjoy. All right. Well, welcome to this uh, edition of Buildings on Air. Uh, it is not a live FM edition uh, through Lumpen Radio, although it might hit the Lumpen Radio airwaves uh, sooner or later. Um, currently, WLPNLP is, um, you know, uh, airing reruns um, and remote content uh, because of the coronavirus, um, and you know, Illinois is on lockdown. Uh, so uh, I'm recording from the home office, um, um, and I'm uh, really grateful that I can be having a conversation with Billy Fleming, a uh, Buildings on Air alum. Uh, he joins the the elite cadre of multiple bu- multiple time Buildings on Air attendees. Um, and Billy, yeah, we're super grateful that you were able to uh, hop on a Zoom call, as is the current state of the world. Everyone's hopping on Zoom calls uh, to have a chat with us. How are you? I'm great. Yeah, thanks for having me on again. Uh, you can see on our Zoom, I've changed my name to Zoom USA, which is where I feel like I live now. Um, <laughs> yes. I, even, I even managed to sneak that little location tag into our press release for the simulator setter we're going to talk about today, uh, yesterday, which is my favorite part of the whole thing. Um, yeah. But yeah, like everyone else, I'm slowly losing my mind on video chats with people around the country. Yeah, yeah it's like the new uh, Virgil, Texas from um, that one Talking Heads <laughs> movie. I forget. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, it's a, yeah, it's a weird time. Um, and, you know, I think, um, yeah, we're all residents of Zoom USA now. Uh, and if and if you're not, I, I, I hope you... Um, I hope you can be uh, at some point to keep yourself safe. Um, but yeah, uh, but while, while we're on that, it's actually just offer really quickly. Anyone who like is desperate for a video chat platform and like for whatever reason doesn't have access to one, you don't have a license or can't get a free version to work, you should like find me on Twitter at Jubilee and DM me. Um, I'm happy to like find creative ways to make the various softwares that are available through Pen available to you. 
Uh, this is one of the things that is good for is you're distributing resources like that. Um, so let me know. Everyone should have access to this right now. There we go. Yeah. What an amazing offer. <laughs> access. Don't, 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 yeah. yeah, don't send this in. Don't send this episode to my employer. Uh, cool. Well, I think um, one of the reasons why I'm excited to have you on, um, in addition to being one of one of my favorite people on uh, on the internet, thinking about uh, the 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 Green New Deal and uh, the future of a sustainable economy, um, uh, you're you're already thinking about how to how we can engage the upcoming stimulus. Uh, it's clear that a stimulus of some kind is inevitable in this uh, pressing moment, um, but you're, you're kind of already planning ahead, trying to figure out how we will make this stimulus a green stimulus to rebuild our economy. Uh, and to that end, uh, you've been working on an open letter that went live a couple of days ago called appropriately enough, a green stimulus to rebuild our economy. So um, why don't you give us the background of what that is, uh, who you worked on it with, um, and yeah, yeah, what's the skinny? Yeah, so there's a group of us, I'll talk about who in just a second, but sure. um, yeah, we're entering a period where, you know, I think the there have been projections from both the Treasury Secretary and some of the different um, Federal Reserve chairs scattered across the country that we're heading for somewhere between, you know, 20 and 30-ish percent unemployment. Um, just for context, that's like that that would double the highest rate, a little bit more than double the highest rate from the Great Recession about 11 years ago. Uh, it's really a level we haven't seen uh, outside of the Great Depression and the 30s here in the United States. Um, and, you know, it would put us in one of the most um, sort of unprecedented uh, economic and financial situations um, that's ever faced the country, the world. Um, and so knowing that, I think we, we sort of began thinking about um, what, you know, what, what the role of the state, what the role of the government might be um, in managing, you know, these moments um, and understanding that for the, certainly for the next few weeks and months and possibly for more than a year, uh, Congress is going to be passing whatever, whatever we want to call them. It can be a stimulus bill, a relief bill, a recovery bill probably going to be called all of those at some point. We're going to be passing different rounds of them over and over again for the foreseeable future. And I think we should actually clarify up front, right, that um, there are, the, the bill that's in front uh, of the Senate or in front of Congress uh, today, kind of as we speak, um, is the third bill, actually, in, in the sort of economic response to um, COVID-19 and should really be thought of as more of a relief bill, right? This is, we're very, very clear in the open letter that we put forward that the first priority for as long as it remains an issue should be making sure that people have the resources they need to stay in their homes, uh, to be fed, to get the health care they need when they get sick, to meet all of the sort of essential and basic services that, you know, are, ought to be or are guaranteed to you, um, you know, living here in the U.S., and what we're trying to do is to say, okay, like there are there are other people better positioned to help think about what that should be. Uh, we we point directly to them uh, in this open letter in this in the third or fourth paragraph. There, that's uh, a group of, of movement organizations who put forward um, what they're calling the people's bailout, uh, which is about sort of restructuring power through this bailout away from you know a bunch of executives and industries who have have really put themselves in a terrible position. Um, the airline industry and fossil fuel industry in particular where execs have been investing most of their earnings in stock buybacks for the better part of a decade uh, and left themselves with absolutely zero cash on hand uh, at a moment like this to be able to deal with the crisis. 
um, and have done it largely because it ensured they'd be able to drive up stock prices and get larger bonuses every quarter um, and for no other real apparent reason that they can explain to anyone. Um, and so this group has put forward a much more human and like and worker-centered bailout plan called the People's Bailout. Uh, we point directly to it and say, you know, in, in the short to medium term, this is where all of our energy should be. But in the meantime, uh, we also know that when the pandemic recedes and the WHO and CDC uh, give us the all clear to go back to work, um, that, you know, in a country where we, we have 20 to 30, 30% of the people unemployed, um, that is not a switch we can flip on and off easily. Like there is no snapping back to, you know, millions of restaurant workers or service industry workers going right back to the jobs they had, you know, when they were shuttered months and months and months ago. Um, the same is true for many, many, other, many, many other uh, jobs that, you know, have been effectively shut down as a result of the, the, the various social distancing measures that we're taking. And so whether we want to or not, the economy is going to be restructured when the relief phase of this response ends at the stimulus phase where the back to work phase begins. And rather than you know, sort of finding ourselves flat footed the way we were in 2008 and 9 uh, during the Great Recession when first TARP, the, the bailout bill essentially, and then uh, ARA, the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act, which was you know, functionally the Obama stimulus bill, uh, sort of came forward. Uh, we wanted to make sure we were better positioned and that the vacuum that tends to appear at these moments is filled by better ideas than will be put forward by, you know, our friends at places like the Heritage Foundation and the American Enterprise Institute and all the places that have giant teams of researchers and lawyers who are working on this stuff constantly that the left has never really had in the same sort of level. Um, and so really, this letter was about trying to collect as many of those ideas as possible uh, in one place to say, Let's take care of the people you know, who are really struggling right now in the way they need to be taken care of. And in the meantime, let's start thinking about how we're going to put all of them back to work um, once this pandemic proceeds. Nice. Yeah, and I, um, it's, it's interesting because you can, you can already see what uh, the kind of fruits of all of that um, labor from the right-wing think tanks uh, in this current stimulus. Uh, and I just got a little notification on my phone that... Uh, the Dow just surged 2,000 points um, <laughs> in anticipation of, uh, you know, this kind of uh, stimulus bill that includes all kinds of uh, shock doctrine-esque, um, um, I don't know, little treats for the right wing um, kind of buried within it. So, yeah, um, I, I mean, uh, I, I think it's, it's really... Uh, interesting to think about what's going on right now, counterposed with sort of what's what's in front of me here, uh, the kind of printout of the letter. And so, um, you know, I think uh, maybe we can go through some of these um, some of these demands because uh, there, there's there's uh, sort of eight broad categories uh, in what you call the menu, um, and they 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 have there's dozens and dozens and dozens of like fairly specific policy proposals. Um, mm -hmm. Some that jump out to me include creating a federal fund to support the formation of worker cooperatives aligned with decarbonization, solar panel installation, regenerative agriculture. Um, another one of my favorites was provide new funding through the National Endowment for the Arts, the Smithsonian and other cultural institutions to support out of work artists, designers and other makers. Um, there's stuff in here about transit, there's stuff in here about the Green New Deal for Public Housing Act, repealing the Faircloth Amendment, which is, you know, what caps the number of uh, 
federally funded public housing units in the U.S. I mean, on and on and on. I I could do the highlights, but um, there's so <laughs> many. And so, um, yeah. I mean, I mean, so so maybe you can give folks a kind of flavor of of the things that are included here. Yeah. So I might begin with my fellow co-authors. I, I should talk about them, and then I'll talk sure. about uh, all the material. Just because this was, this was like a wonderfully collaborative project, like a lot of the other things I've been lucky to, to be a part of. Um, and I'll just kind of go in the order of the doc. So Johanna Bozwa, uh, who your listeners in New York should know very well, has been behind a lot of the really successful, uh, or been involved in a lot of the really successful public power campaign work that's gone on there. Um, she co-manages the Climate Energy Program at the Democracy Collaborative. Uh, Mijin Shah, who's an assistant professor of urban and, and uh, environmental policy out in California. Uh, at Occidental, uh, Daniel Aldana Cohen, who I don't know if you've had on the show before, but you probably should. Uh, he's my yeah. work husband, um, and he and I do, you know, like pretty much everything together. I feel like these days, um, and then me, and then Jim Goodman, who uh, I don't know if he will be familiar to your uh, to your listeners, um, but he should be. He runs, and I'm always, I always sort of botch the name, and he intentionally left the, his affiliation <laughs> off of here. Um, but he essentially runs the small family farmer equivalent of the Farm Bureau. So Farm Bureau represents like industrial ag and then people who just like want insurance because that's what the Farm Bureau does. Um, Jim represents like all the people who are like actually owning and working land, um, you know, all over the country and has been instrumental in steering uh, a bunch of people from that world into the sort of Green New Deal conversation. Um, and then we have Ayanna Elizabeth Johnson. Uh, folks will probably know her from the Blue New Deal, which she's been really uh, instrumental in, in putting together. She runs uh, the Ocean Collective and Urban Ocean Lab in New York, uh, was a, a sort of prominent Warren advisor uh, on her campaign. Um, we have Daniel Kamen, uh, who might be familiar. He's, he's in the energy, for people who are like big energy nerds, uh, they will know Dan. Um, he's a professor in the Energy and Resources uh, Group at the Goldman School of Public Policy out at Berkeley. Um, he and I overlapped a little bit in the Obama administration. I don't know that we really like ever crossed paths physically, but he was the science envoy for the State Department while I was there. Um, Julian Brave Noiscat, who uh, is the VP for Policy and Strategy at Data for Progress. Um, Mark Paul, who's a, an econ professor uh, at the New College in Florida, at Roosevelt Institute, a DFP fellow. Um, we do a bunch of stuff with, with Mark as well uh, outside of this. Um, Raj Patel, uh, who um, folks who were in Philly are watching, uh, you know, in September um, when we did our Design Your Green New Deal event, would, would remember Raj sort of kicked things off for us that morning with one of my favorite talks of the day, which was about the sort of history of labor militancy and, and sort of food worker and agriculture worker uh, or farm worker um, revolts uh, in the U.S. and around the world. Um, and relating it back to this moment in the Green New Deal, he's a research professor down at UT in Austin. Uh, and then lastly, Theoria uh, Prampos, who, uh, it, again, is probably familiar to many of your listeners, uh, an assistant professor of political science at Providence uh, College, uh, also a new DFP fellow, um, and just put out a great industrial policy uh, report with them and Daniel and I and a few others. Um, and so that, that was the team. We had many other people, you know, who, who had eyes on this, who for lots of reasons um, just could not really put their name on it for institutional reasons. Um, they made the mistake that that uh, of asking for permission, which I usually don't for these things, um, which is why I was able to keep my name on it. Um, and you know, we circulated it uh, in the sort of days before it became public to some some friends and allies and other folks, and asked them to kind of sign on to endorse. And I won't read the whole list because it's a little over a thousand people now. 
But if you just look at the kind of like top line there, when you scroll below the names, you'll see Bill McKibben. Uh, you'll see Gina McCarthy, who was uh, the EPA administrator uh, during the Obama administration, who helped uh, write the Clean Power Plan. Uh, you'll see Andrea Dutton, a uh, recent Mac fellow, who's a climate scientist at the uh, University of Wisconsin. Uh, you'll see Hank Ovink. You'll see Naomi Klein. You'll see her partner, Avi. Um, you'll see a whole bunch of other people uh, who, who are, you know, I think excited and, and, and eager and willing to put their, their name behind this thing for us, which is, I think, really helped it, um, you know, get some attention, which was kind of the whole point was to put some of these ideas into circulation. But I think your, your question was really about the idea. So we should talk about those um, and not just the people, right? So you, you were right to lay out, right? We, we sort of, you know, again, very clear up top. Priority one is like taking care of people immediately. And once we do that, then we sort of were imagining really like eight built in natural environment uh, kind of sectors where we might think about um, sort of putting people back to work when the time comes. Mm -hmm. So th those categories, roughly housing, buildings, and civic infrastructure. Um, two would be transportation, workers, systems, and infrastructure. Three would be labor, manufacturing, and a just transition. Uh, four would be energy system, workers, and infrastructure. Five would be farmers, food systems, and rural communities. Uh, six would be green infrastructure, public lands, and the environment broadly. Uh, seven would be regulatory mostly, so regulations, innovation, and, and public investment or public venture capital is, is kind of how we've taken the calling it. Um, and then eight was sort of green foreign policy, which you could think of almost as like stealth anti-imperialism. Um, I wouldn't think about it that way. <laughs> that, that is my preferred way of thinking about it. Um, so, I mean, there's a lot in here and I, I, you know, I don't want to get into like the weeds of it, although I'm sure you'll have questions about specific things, but I think the sort of sort of common threads or the through lines between all of those categories um, can maybe be thought of in kind of like three broad ways. Um, one of those is about like the ownership question, right? Which is going to be, I think, boiling in this kind of bailout relief bill um, and necessarily so because I think, you know, any private company that's receiving taxpayer money at this moment um, also, I think, ought to agree to uh, giving up some ownership stake in it to us. Um, for the most part, you know, these are industries that, uh, if you're talking about airlines and fossil fuels in particular, um, that have been severely mismanaged by their execs. And thank God, like the, air, you know, the aviation industry has Sarah Nelson to kind of push them from the left. Um, it's not clear. Yeah, well, absolutely. <laughs> just like wish she was running for president. Um, and, uh, you know, we also are going to need them to be much better actors going forward if we act, if we are serious about achieving any of our climate goals. So not only have they behaved so badly that they placed themselves in this position of precarity, and if it were me writing, you know, the bailout bill, their execs would be precluded from ever holding a, you know, a corporate executive job again. Um, because they've so severely mismanaged their companies, but um, we also we have to maintain, I think, the, the sort of ownership stake in those in those uh, companies and those industries because uh, they're not going to get to net zero if we don't. Um, and it's been a particularly, I think, kind of ironic point for me to see emerge from kind of the center left at this moment um, because they've they've been very, very, very anti-public power. Um, if you look at kind of like the the third way, the the university energy centers the caps, the like center left institutions that both take a ton of fossil fuel money and do a bunch of energy research. Um, we shouldn't be surprised that they're opposed to the idea of public ownership of utilities and energy companies. Um, but they are now very much okay with asking for a public you know, ownership state and often a controlling ownership state 
uh, in all of these different industries that people like Johanna and others have been calling for for a very long time. So I would just say welcome to the team um, on that one. Um, and I, and that, that's been a big piece of it. I think related to the ownership piece uh, of private companies is that we do focus a lot of uh, a lot of effort in this letter on uh, already existing sort of public agencies and authorities that function in the same way, right? So local housing authorities, local transit authorities, rural electric co-ops, rural farming, ag extension co-ops. Uh, these are also, you know, massive, massive employment centers that own and operate trillions of dollars worth of infrastructure and assets um, where we don't have to have the messy ownership questions. We can just like fund them to keep paying their workers and keep doing the vital things that they do. And also ensure that when, you know, we get the all clear from the WHO and, and uh, CDC and it's time to go back to work that like the trains and buses run and like someone is in the management office at like the public housing community to help someone who needs help. Um, and that when farmers like are, are given the all clear to go harvest that, you know, there's there are resources available to them at the extension office to figure out the best way to do that in this sort of unprecedented moment. Mm -hmm. um, those are not switches that can be turned on and off. Um, and so we've already seen a bunch of local transit transit authorities um, begin asking for versions of this. I think New Jersey Transit was uh, publicly asking for something like one and a quarter billion or so to kind of float them for the next quarter. Um, the MTA has asked for a big pile of money, too. They're all going to ask for it. And so we've, we thought it was really important here to say, OK, these are also, you know, the fossil fuel industry and the airline industry own trillions of dollars worth of assets and equipment. And that's often part of their talking point for, for why they have to be built out. So do our local housing authorities and transit authorities and electric co-ops and farming co-ops. And so, mm -hmm. um, you know, from our perspective, it was important here to sort of say that, you know, any any true you know rescue plan, whether it's on the relief or stimulus side, has to put these these publicly owned and operated and, and service oriented uh, institutions at its center. Um, and so that was one. I think a second sort of um, you know sort of key instrument here was something we're calling a green SOM rule. So uh, SOM S A H M, uh, and I'm blanking on her first name now, which is terrible. Um, she's an economist. She was formerly at Federal Reserve and really pioneered. Um, this idea a couple of years ago that one of the big failures from the 2008, 9, 10 recovery was that we've really only got one massive financial stimulus bill to try and put people back to work. And part of the reason for that is because it's impossible, it's politically impossible to imagine that happening uh, multiple times over and over again, even when Democrats control both chambers, just because the appetite or the, the fatigue sets in. Uh, there is no appetite and there's lots of fatigue. Um, and so what Sam proposed was that uh, an automatic trigger be set that when unemployment reaches a certain rate that the Treasury is required as a, as a matter of law to cut checks to people. Um, so when it gets to, I forget what it was, like 8 or 10%, um, then an automatic stimulus is triggered and it does not stop until it dips below, I forget what it was, but like 5 or 6%. Um, and for us in this, you know, one of the, the things that we call for up top in the letter before we get into the themes is uh, effectively a green sombre, although we don't call it that here. but. It's an automatic trigger, um, you know, saying this first package of two trillion or so in green stimulus money would be automatically renewed at four percent of GDP, or about eight hundred and fifty billion, which is about the size of, of Obama's stimulus. It was about nine hundred billion um, every year uh, until uh, we get back to three and a half percent unemployment, and until we reach total decarbonization, which is effectively saying that we will never stop spending this money, um, or at least not until say twenty fifty. Um, which, and, you know, Mark Paul is from the, the world of sort of MMT uh, economics. Um, this letter was signed on in support by 
I don't know, a dozen or so sort of leading figures from that field, including Stephanie Kelton, Bruno Wagner, uh, a few others. Um, and so, I mean, this is an, an idea that's been sort of put sort of in the ether by them for a very long time. And it's, you know, related in, in a sense to something like a, a sort of effective uh, or a functional jobs guarantee, because the guaranteeing employment in all of these uh, sectors through this sort of stimulus spending um, operates in much the same way that a jobs guarantee would. And even a jobs guarantee, once there were, you know, we got to a level of, of unemployment at three and a half percent or so, would see a lot of people move out of the public sector into the private sector. Um, I, I, of course, would be very much okay with much, many, many more opportunities and staffing available uh, to people in the public sector, um, but we're willing to, you know, like have that conversation later. Sure. Um, and then the sort of third big thing here, so if we have the ownership question kind of as number one, um, we have the sort of automatic trigger as number two. The third was really about hearing this massive backlog of good and mostly green projects that already exist. And for a variety of reasons, uh, just have not and probably would not otherwise get built. And you can find these, you know, at, at all scales of government. So in sort of state and local government, these are the very unsexy projects that are actually really important, like ADA compliance and positive train uh, control standards on all railways so that we don't derail trains, which happens more than you would think. Um, and so and, and all kinds of other things that are related to maintenance and repair of the places that we already live. And there are all kinds of reasons that's important. The, you know, one of many is that maintenance and repair jobs create, you know, between 15 and 20% more uh, jobs per dollar spent than new construction. So mm -hmm. all of these kind of endless road extensions into Exerbia um, that make speculative real estate developers lots of money don't really create that many jobs. This is not like a new story for you or your listeners, but we've, we've tried to find, you know, through various different measures in this letter, ways to kind of build that into the sort of bureaucratic machinery of government. Um, and so, you know, beyond the sort of state and local sort of infrastructure, neighborhood sort of repair bit, um, we also call for, a, you know, a clearing of the backlog for at the National Park Service, the U.S. Forest Service, um, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, all, all, the, all the places where, um, you know, there are huge sort of physical either land or infrastructural assets that are owned and operated and managed by the government. Um, and where there are sort of an endless, uh, there are endless lists of projects related to kind of either maintenance and repair of existing facilities and trails and other things, or the creation of new ones um, that could be very easily sort of brought up to the shovel-ready standard during this period of, of kind of mass unemployment, um, and then be ready to go the day we get the, the all clear from WHO and NCDC. And so, you know, a lot of this is about like going from the kind of master plan level to the CD level to pulling permits to making procurement orders, um, all the stuff that like you don't physically have to be in an office at the Department of Interior or wherever to do. You do those things remotely. Um, and actually, like, you know, this is one of the things people tend to forget about the New Deal um, sort of jobs uh, program is that, you know, in addition to all of the, the sort of working class folks that are blue collar workers who, who found employment through the New Deal, it also put, you know, a ton of, of sort of service or professional services industry workers, mm -hmm. uh, you know, to work in, in the bureaucracy. This is where architects, engineers, landscape architects, city planners begin to build what, what's later referred to as the design, the design bureaucracy. Um, you know, by going it's on. Also, to, it's also when uh, when the most sort of people in that professional class were were unionized uh, mm -hmm. as well, because there, so many of them were kind of rolled into the public sector. 
uh, and were really sort of operating as a kind of, uh, you know, as, as uh, they, they, were, they were laboring <laughs> for the kind of uh, public good in a way that architects often talk about, but weirdly try to pigeonhole into the private sector in a way that doesn't really mesh. Um, so yeah, yeah, it's, that's, that's, a, that's a win, 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 as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. Well, and I mean, you know, I mean, you know, the Stoops, I'm sure you and Marianella have thought about this. I'm sure you have students who've thought about it. I hear about it every single week from my students um, who are, I think, desperate and looking for opportunities outside of the private kind of fee for service life. Um, and not to say that like that life shouldn't exist for, for designers, because I'm fine with that as like being one of the many options available to people leaving design school. But it's almost the only option right now, um, <laughs> yep. and it would be it would be nice, and I think actually like better for all parties involved uh, to have more options available. One of them being going to work at one of these places, carrying the backlog of vital kind of recreational and public lands projects um, that people. I mean, look at where people are going during the pandemic. It's not to like I don't know like the Guggenheim. It's to like open spaces and parks and all of these other places. Um, you know where you can be safely socially distant from people mm -hmm. but maybe like talk to them not only on zoom <laughs> yeah absolutely uh so yeah i think that gives us a really good flavor of everything that's on the menu here um my next question i mean and and a lot of, i i love the specificity of of all of the suggestions as well and my my next question really is how how you think uh how you imagine uh, people will start organizing around this. I think um, a lot of times one, one of the challenges of the left in America right now is um, we find ourselves sort of um, stuck between like having levels of mass organization that we haven't really seen in quite some time, but still that are sort of insufficient uh, to really demand on their own um, you know, significant policy changes or wins. Um, and then on the other hand, we sort of have, um, um, you know, lot, lots of policy, people who emphasize policy uh, who, who aren't necessarily connecting with that mass movement. And mm -hmm. I think, I mean, I think this is a, a, a general question. Um, and the only way that you kind of figure it out is by starting somewhere and, and, and mm -hmm. going for it. Um, you know, I, I, so I'm curious how, how in the case of this letter, y'all have kind of uh, thought through that, that problem and how you imagine uh, people sort of taking up these demands. Is it, is it that um, you sort of, I, I mean, you deliberately call it a menu, which I really like. Do you imagine <laughs> it, uh, see, seeing sort of, uh, you know, enterprising politicians with a populist bent sort of picking up a couple of these things and folding them in? Maybe organizations like the Architecture Lobby or DSA, you know, recognizing, um, you know, an affinity with a couple of these things and really pushing for them hard through lobbying or whatever else. Um, how, how do you see it? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a few things. I should say first, you know, it's it's a menu in part because none of us are going to restaurants for a while. So this is, this is <laughs> we're going to get to like have sure. a good menu to order from. Um, but what, you know, one of the things that, you know, providing a, a, a sort of, um, I don't know, high-ish profile public doc like this allows is for people to be much more creative and inventive than like we would, the nine of us who worked on it would have been like sure. thinking about how to run these ideas kind of into the right places. Um, already we've heard from friends at DSA, some who've signed on to the letter that, 
you know, they're, they're thinking about actually endorsing it um, and maybe fast tracking that, which is a new process for them, um, partially, I think, due to uh, everyone's remote working status, um, which would be fantastic. I mean, they should do what they want to do and they will. Um, but, uh, you know, I think having, you know, the power of, some, of, of you know, a body like TSA buying something like this is, is, is quite incredible. Um, we've already heard and we're hearing, you know, even as we were putting this together and, you know, had worked with previously a bunch of members of Congress on all kinds of things um, whose staff uh, all this morning, uh, I know because I got replies back from some of them, um, all got this letter with kind of a personal note from all of us attached. Um, and so, you know, every single Democratic member of the House and Senate, uh, their pledge director and whoever is tasked on their environmental portfolio side uh, at the junior staffer level uh, now have this in front of them. Uh, and, um, if I, if I had my mail chip open, I could tell you how many have read it, but I do not. Um, and then, uh, the other is that, um, you know, as we were drafting this too, we were, you know, we referenced this letter, the COVID-19 letter for people's bailout. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you click through to that, you'll see now there's, there's a live website for them and it has, I don't know, probably like 500 or so movement orgs who, who have endorsed it. Um, and we've been constantly, I think, sort of feeding each other ideas back and forth, talking strategy, talking about like the best way to get all of this stuff in front of the right people. Um, and so there's always this kind of, I think, uh, informal and, and productive collaboration going on between, you know, what, what's really like a bunch of, of wants and a bunch of movement mm-hmm. leaders, which has been, um, you know, re- Sunrise has been instrumental in organizing, but it's been a really fruitful, I think, exercise for everyone, especially for me. And that's what, one of the most enjoyable parts of this. Um, the other is just that, you know, I, 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 that all sounds like very optimistic and hopeful. And, and um, you know, I, I generally fancy myself as like neither of those things. <laughs> um, but but I, I, at moments I am, and maybe this is one of them. Um, but I also think, you know, we shouldn't overstate, like, although the left is far more powerful today than it was in, say, 08, 09, when we were last having these kinds of conversations. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's evidenced by all kinds of things, the least of which is that, you know, Bernie Sanders... Um, was the you know second to last person standing again in a Democratic nomination contest, and, and you know it's not over, but uh, it's very close to being over. Um, and, but the other thing is that you know a lot of the people who I think are uh, theoretically committed to ideas that might might you know be explicitly or implicitly in this letter. Uh, on the professional side of the left, so the professional left, the folks who go to like Netroots. Um, you know, like they are uh, at least as concerned with how to get a job in the next administration or how to get a consulting contract or how to get a grant for their research center as they are with, you know, realizing some of this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of those folks are my friends and I don't mean, you know, they can, if they listen to this, they can take that for what, for what it is. I, you, I've said that to most of the people uh, who that would apply to who are actually my friends. Um, but you know, I, I don't think we should overstate like you know the the place that we're in. Um, we are like mobilized in ways that we have not been, uh, you know, in recent memory. Certainly in my adult lifetime. Um, I don't want to confuse that with organized because that is, those things are different, right? Um, yeah, and I also and I also don't want to. You know, I, it would be wonderful. I think if the left was like from the professional to the movement side, a cohesive and coordinated uh, body, but it is not. Um, and we have a lot of work to do. This is going to be a chaotic moment. And I think that's part of why it was important for us to put this letter together when and how we did, because we knew uh, in these kind of chaotic moments, um, there will be kind of a vacuum in which ideas can can sort of, you know, be placed and fill, fill the vacuum or fill the void. Mm-hmm. Um, and we hope that at least a few of these are, are ones that make their way into that. 
Yeah. Yeah. It strikes me as uh, that um, documents like this are really important sort of pivot points between all of these different, different lefts, different, mm -hmm. different lefts uh, that constitute the American left. Um, Good. Yeah. Um, well, I, I mean, I think um, we're almost short on time. I think the plan for, for Buildings on Air is going to be bite-sized chunks as often as we can get them out uh, for the duration of uh, this crisis. Um, so I'm wondering if, if there's anything we missed or anything that's on your mind um, that, that we should talk about before uh, we wrap up. Yeah, well, let me ask you a couple questions. Yeah, then. sure. <laughs> like, what, what were like, what were like, maybe your two or three kind of like favorite things from the letter, and then what were the two or three that you yeah. were like, what the fuck is this doing in here? <laughs> well, I mean, I think for me, um, the the stuff that emphasized, I, I have I have my highlights, uh, and you know, I read a couple of them off. I think um, specifically the ones that had to do with. Um, require it like building energy codes that stuff obviously piques my interest because i'm an architect um but i thought it was really important uh to talk about uh that green building grants need to include funding to hire staff to ma manage planning and implementation um because i know in the city of chicago uh, architects self-certify compliance with the energy code so uh the city does a pretty good job of staying up to date with the most uh up to la the latest uh editions of the uh iecc uh but no one is actually there to enforce it and if you go look at you know most new construction that happens in chicago if you have any idea about building insulation and and sort of the requirements around it you know that the vast majority of construction in chicago is sort of just ignoring whole cloth, the energy requirements. So um, that that dimension of, of sort of enforcement and making sure that there's money in place for people to kind of uh, be following up on these things um, seems uh, smart and like a sort of prerequisite. <laughs> um, so I was happy to see that in there as well. And I think one of the, one of the things that um, was definitely intriguing to me was some of the stuff about uh, federal zoning regulation mm. um, because uh, the way that zoning laws, the kind of patchwork of zoning laws in this country um, is, is sort of totally irrational. Um, and as much as I like, I, you know, I, 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 I'm, I agree with you. I, I'm a kind of optimist when it comes to like the left is chaotic and messy, but like if we're going to figure it out at any moment in history, like it's now and like, you know, you see people sort of merging together, I think, you know, and, and I'm, I'm optimistic that for all of the messiness, things will kind of emerge from it. Now, I, I feel the exact opposite way when I think about zoning walks, but like urban, <laughs> like the, the, the sort of urban policy um, uh, sort of I, I, you can't call them an establishment, but the, the urban policy milieu is, um, I think, really in an unhealthy state. Um, and so I think that that's a kind of strategic question uh, for all of us on the left whose issues sort of intersect with the built environment um, is, is how, how we deal with that. And so federal zoning regulation, I think, is an, is an interesting one, um, but I kind of... Uh, I, I, yeah, I'm, I'm curious how that would, would work. Uh, not to say that it couldn't, 
Um, but it might actually be the thing that we need to kind of cut through a lot of uh, the kind of messiness. Because I think it's one of those things where the specificity and details often don't help the conversation. Um, and I think here uh, we have a lot of specificity that does help. Um, I don't know if that makes sense or not. Uh, but those those were a couple of things that, that jumped out to me sort of off the bat from like a, a, a you know, lefty architect perspective. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's kind of what I expected, to be honest. But um, <laughs> the zoning question I think is really important or like the, the sort of coordinated and regulation question is really important. Um, there's no group of people more annoying in the world than like online urbanists. Um, I just like, I just smash the mute button on my Twitter all the time. Every time <laughs> I see one of them pop up in my feed. Um, but look like, yeah, zoning is, is both like a huge problem and not going away. And so thinking yeah. about whether it's like model codes, which I don't think are both are, are like both feasible or desirable um, at the national level, or it's something um, that, that tries to, I think, either require or encourage or provide rewards for sort of multi-jurisdictional coordination um, yeah. and sort of achieving local land use outcomes with big federal strings. Um, yeah. Those have to be a part of this conversation. You know, I think like um, the program itself was terrible in lots of ways, um, but the Obama administration's race to the top uh, program for education, um, I think as a model that with totally different goals is interesting. Like the goals there were like about slowly gutting public schools, which, you know, not a big fan of. Um, <laughs> but thinking, thinking about taking a huge pot of federal money uh, and asking, you know, state, local, county governments to, um, you know, compete or, you know, adopt a bunch of local reforms before they qualify for them, which could have a bunch of different outcomes related to justice and decarbonization and all kinds of other things that are a part of the Green New Deal. Um, I think is, is something we have to think about doing with every dollar that comes out of HUD and DOT, you know, for the foreseeable future. Um, I think like, you know, all of, all of that federal money can and has to do more than one thing at once. So, um, it can be tied to, you know, the CDBG program. Um, but the, you know, the places that qualify for it, uh, ought to be adopting things like, you know, an abolition of parking minimums. Mm -hmm. Um, they ought to be doing things like actually hiring enough staff to enforce their building codes. Um, that'll be doing things like setting 10% of their municipal budget aside to build new public housing uh, or, you know, new affordable housing, whatever. Um, like these are, there are all kinds of things that you can, you can demand of, of municipalities and other local governments um, with, you know, the promise of big pots of federal money to come when they do. And so I think that's really where that, that bullet was coming from. Um, and, you know, I think on the building, on the, on the sort of thinking about staffing up or sort of rebuilding capacity and government side, um, none of this stuff's going to be possible without that. Um, we're both, a lot of it's going to happen really quickly. And we can't do it at the level we're staffed at now for lots of reasons. One of which is that, you know, most federal agencies are staffed, and this is true for a lot of state and locals too, are staffed at, you know, 1988 or 89 levels. So they haven't hired a new person, um, you know, effectively in 30 years or more. Um, and also because like we have to, so we have to do that just to clear like a backlog of projects, but they also, because we're going to be doing so much of this really fast, they're going to have to learn a lot of things like in real time or very close to real time about how to do the next project better, the next, next project sure. even better. Um, and that's only possible when you have, you know, enough capacity to like not just be putting fires out of the day, which is how most municipal governments work. The people who are working on them are like heroes. Um, they're doing like 14 jobs at once. 
and they should get some help. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, um, um, yeah, that's definitely the experience in Chicago. Um, I also think um, one of the things that I found curious too is sort of um, discussion of public private partnerships. I think um, it's clearly related to this ownership question, mm-hmm. um, sort of like, you know, who, 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 who is taking a bigger slice of the pie here when federal dollars are involved. Um, but a lot of the projects that are sort of operating at this sort of big grand infrastructure scale, the only sort of uh, acceptable political vehicle uh, in the last few decades for, for sort of realizing them has been public-private partnerships. And, and a, a lot of the biggest sort of architecture, engineering, construction companies are sort of, um, they've really become tailor-made to like take public dollars and turn them into private profits. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think, I think it would be interesting also to see um, how some of these specific policy proposals uh, sort of, I mean, I think some of them are like, you know, amenable uh, to public-private partnerships and, and that might not be a bad thing because it might mean that, you know, they have a greater chance of being sort of realized under like, you know, uh, uh, God forbid, a Biden or Trump administration, um, <laughs> which, you know, uh, looks like that's what we're going to get. Uh, yeah. but, but, you know, um, and, and then maybe some of them start to allocate serious funding um, towards uh, new programs and institutions that might sort of be able to hit escape velocity from that sort of public-private partnership paradigm. Um, ooh, that's a lot of peas. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, a, that's, another, that's another kind of thing that, that jumps to mind also. Um, yeah, I mean, I think the, P, the P3 question is always really tough because, you know, I too would love to like flip a switch and everything from like the sort of conceptual plan to the CD phase, to the permit pulling, to the actual construction, like all be done by people who don't work at, you know, for private real estate developers or private consulting firms. Um, But those those vehicles don't exist in this country for the most part. Um, And, you know, I think we can get to a point where they do, but the first step is probably like a massive staffing up of, of, you know, state, federal, local government agencies that are, that are managing and maybe doing some of the planning and design work themselves. Mm-hmm. And then the building side still probably being private. Um, yeah. You know, not, not like, I think if we're thinking about like an imperfect solution, um, I think, you know, this is an idea that would probably be a non-starter for many people in Congress, but to me it feels like kind of a compromise solution. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, the other is just that, um, yeah, there's just, there's just going to be so much like freaking work to do. Um, and <laughs> yeah. yeah. And we, you know, I've been running around doing a bunch of D talks for the last year, probably since last time you and I were, were doing this together. Um, and one of the things I've started to put into all of those is, um, you know, I think, uh, an, an, equ- an equating of, um, you know, the HOKs, the AECOMs, the MSPs, that the diabetes of the world, uh, with McKinsey, um, and <laughs> yep. which they are. I mean, we yeah. like to think of these design firms as like their own special, like beautiful little flowers uh, doing their own, like you know, special beautiful work all over the world. When in reality, they are chasing the same pots of money from the same people in the same places, um, doing the same amount of like sociological and economic damage and ecological damage all over the world. Yeah. The only difference is that, you know, McKinsey is on the like management consulting side and we're on the built environment consulting side. Right. Um, 
It was not a popular topic at Harvard when I was there giving this talk um, <laughs> with, with, their with their faculty anyway, who I had some slides of in the, the presentation. But, um, you know, I, I think for us to be serious about taking this stuff on at the scale, scope and, and sort of pace that the crisis demands, both like the pandemic and, and the climate crisis, mm -hmm. um, that it just requires like having a more powerful and a more visible state. I mean, I think that's one of the things I didn't really talk about in here. Uh, in this conversation that I think is kind of peppered throughout the letter is that, you know, the 09 recovery was explicitly about submerging the state, like hiding it from people and making sure nobody knew like where the money was coming from or like what government was doing. So basically like the idea was let's do the opposite of what FDR did during the New Deal. Um, and, and, you know, like, you know, issues with the New Deal and FDR aside, although there are many, um, I think like one of the lessons we have to have learned from those two experiences is that people have to know like what government is doing for them if we have any hope of restoring faith in it. Uh, and one of the ways to do that is like giving, giving a lot more, uh, giving a lot more like everything to people like jobs, yeah. healthcare, everything, um, and giving people the ability to like see the fruits of their labor, uh, and enjoy the fruits of their labor in their everyday lives. Yeah. It doesn't have to just be big, sexy infrastructure projects built by the Army Corps, although it could also be <laughs> that. But it can be like getting electrical appliances in your house when you otherwise couldn't afford them. It can be getting like an upgraded neighborhood park. It can be getting, um, you know, carbon-free concrete pavers on your sidewalk. Like all of these things are things that um, can and should be a part of this and that we have to make visible to people in ways that they, you know, can materially benefit from and understand. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, uh, it makes me think, um, you know, what, one of the how important municipalization is on a local level as a kind of stepping stone for a lot of these things uh, is sort of creating uh, more expanded public infrastructures uh, where, you know, uh, kind of the people who I, I don't know that, that are capable of carrying out infrastructural scale work um, and hopefully actually will have um, Sean Estelle uh, from the yeah. political committee of DSA, who is uh, a neighbor. Uh, and, and oh, really? Yes. Um, yes. He's he's one of the early signatories of the letter. Yeah. yeah they, they they yeah like Sean Sean is uh, Sean, Sean is near near and dear to uh, to my heart. Um, and yes, we have a we have a very high density in our particular neighborhood of Chicago of uh, DSA. Uh, luminar luminaries and, uh, yes. and, and, and organizers, but, um, but hopefully we'll have Sean uh, as well as um, some others uh, from Chicago DSA on to talk about the work that they're doing to municipalize uh, ComEd uh, here in the city. Um, I'm, I'm hoping that will be another one of our Corona sort of uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> digital episodes. The other thing that, that, that what you just said um, made me think of is a conversation that Marianelle and I have been having about how um, as awful as this sort of uh, crisis is, it might be the first sort of exposure that um, a significant amount of Americans have to a state that is actually helpful. Um, because it's pretty clear that, you know, um, both the left and the right, because of the sort of particular nature of the crisis, are sort of talking about like when Mitt Romney is proposing a universal basic income. Tom Cotton was doing it. Yeah, I mean, you know, then it, 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 we're, we're clearly in a new kind of paradigm. I mean, yeah. you know, there's there's obviously um, 
you know, the right wing wants to use that. If you've read, speaking of Naomi Klein, The Shock Doctrine was a very important book when I was being radicalized. It's a really important book for people to revisit right now. It's all about how the sort of uh, neoliberal right uh, operationalizes crises um, to their benefit. I mean, it's clear that like, you know, that's sort of in the back of all of these, their, their minds when they're kind of talking about these things. Nevertheless, uh, I think when we have a massive amount of Americans who are receiving a check for 1200 bucks in the mail, which seems like it's an inevitability at this point, I think the, uh, um, just the amount of um, room that that opens up in the kind of common political imaginary is huge and, and is a mm-hmm. kind of huge opportunity. Not to mention just the fact that, you know, um, I think most people are so stuck to the status quo that um, and, and sort of see it as this immutable, unchangeable thing. I mean, the fact that everyone's lives have changed so drastically in in a week, I think, mm-hmm. um, uh, will sort of totally rewrite people's imaginations about uh, what things are possible. And I think it's really important uh, that we, uh, as you say, sort of fill the vacuum um, with some specific sort of things that can be done. Um, that said, um, any any closing thoughts or comments? Yeah, I, I mean, I think you nailed it in the end there. I think we're coming to a point where, um, you know, we're going to be forced to choose between eco-socialism and eco-fascism. And this is why we see people like Mitt Romney, who isn't a huge surprise to me, actually, but like Tom Cotton, uh, <laughs> my, my erstwhile, uh, you know, senator from my home state of Arkansas, um, outflanking House Democrats on like how much money we should send into how many people. Um, they they get this. They've always been far better at political strategy, at least on the elected side, than Dems have been. Um, it's part of why, finally, like thank God, the this like redrafted version of a House bill that Pelosi's been working on actually does respond to some of these real uh, concerns and like issues for people uh, in ways that like for a while only a few Republicans in the Senate were responding to. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think you know if we 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 have to. We have to fill uh, the void with as many things as we can. I think we've we've been calling it internally like flooding the zone with ideas, which yeah. um, you know, lots of other people are going to do, and, and, and in many cases have have done, uh, you know, in, in sort of recent days and, and weeks. Um, but you know, this is for this is always a kind of a weird experience. I think on the like faculty side, right, where like I'm expected to be doing a bunch of peer reviewed work that no one reads. Um, and Daniel in particular, I think, is like always very worried about this. Um, but also like that if if and when like th- those opportunities like go away for us, like I will have felt much better about doing this kind of work than I will have, you know, publishing something in the Journal of Architecture that um, my seven like faculty members who have to print it out and can't read it online will read. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, and if, if, if anything encapsulates the building on air spirit, it is that exactly. <laughs> so I appreciate you saying that. Well, uh, Billy Flebig, uh, always a pleasure. And I, and I can't say enough how much I appreciate the opportunity to uh, so- socialize and chat with another human being. Uh, I'm a little bit rusty on that, uh, having, having been sort of stuck at home for a couple of weeks. Um, and yeah, buildings on air. We are like just about to like f- find our 2020 groove again, and all of this has happened. Um, so I, I, I'm I'm uh, grateful that uh, we can sort of 
hop back on that horse no matter what uh, with you. So thanks for uh, taking some time out of your day to uh, join Buildings on Air. Thanks for having me. I am always like you, I think like very uh, appreciative of getting the chance to talk to one of my favorite people. Um, so uh, <laughs> you and you and Marianella are like my, two of my favorite people in, in the design world, certainly, and in you know, the world generally. Um, so I'll come back anytime you want. Great. Uh, I will absolutely take you up on that. The feeling is mutual. And um, <laughs> yeah.